News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Did you know there's something called ghost hunting in the solar system? It's the search for any bit of residual light in the darkness of space and to try to find out where that's coming from. Well, our next guest specializes in the search for this extragalactic background light. Joined us now to talk about his research and more is Roger Windhorst, uh, Warst, I should say, uh, the veteran astronomer and regents professor at Arizona State University. Roger, thank you so much for joining us. Sure. Thank you for having me here. Now, tell me a bit about your research here. What is ghost hunting? Well, we have analyzed um, just about all the images of Hubble in the last uh, 28, uh, almost 30 years uh, with its modern cameras. And um, normally people look at galaxies and stars, but there is a lot of light between the galaxies and stars. And most of that light actually comes from within Jupiter's orbit, so within, you know, five times the distance uh, from the sun. And it is light reflected, sunlight reflected by the dust in the zodiacal cloud, which you can also see by eye. If you have a dark sky, you look just after sunset in the right direction near the horizon, you can see the zodiacal belt, but it needs to be dark and clear. And we found that in 250,000 Hubble images, there is some extra light, you know, a little less than 10% compared to what the zodiacal models predict. And that is, you know, more than what our error bars, error budget allows. And we think it is actually faint light that hangs around the sun uh, being reflected by dust particles that old comets have once upon a time deposited when they passed by the sun. So it's a faint, dim glow, if you wish, that was not present in the models. So all the light that we know about, this is outside of that. So that's why you're trying to figure out where is this light coming from? Yeah, where it's coming from. And people had thought for a long time that most of this would come from outside the galaxy. The, the integrated light from all the galaxies and the stuff hanging between the galaxies and the universe. But there is too much of that. Uh, there is a dim glow that has been seen, as you may have heard, by this mission called New Horizon past the orbit of Pluto. And that is much dimmer than we see. We still don't quite know what to make of it. So there could be some light out there that comes from outside the solar system, but not accounted for by all the stars and galaxies that we know of. So that is uh, another part of the mystery. But we have shown that most of that glow probably comes from inside the solar system, um, just hanging around us. Think of yourself standing in a parking lot uh, on a foggy night, and there is a flashlight, you know, there's a street light there. And from a distance, the street light will have a, a glow surrounding it, light reflected off the mist. And it is kind of like that. And it is not that far from the sun where this light is being reflected. Like a halo. A halo, yes, exactly. Ah. That's a good way to say it, yes. How do you how do you even start to look for this, Dr. Windhorst? Like where how powerful does your telescope have to be? And is this something that you could only do recently because of technology? Um, yeah, you need to be outside the Earth's atmosphere. And even with Hubble, it's hard because Hubble goes around the Earth every 96 minutes. That means it has 15 sunrises and 15 sunsets a day. And that's not only tiring for the astronauts when they service, but also tiring for the telescope. You know, you get a lot of uh, um, um, st- uh, 
the telescope contracts and expands when it uh, gets heated up by the sun and after it goes in the Earth's shadow, it, it becomes a little smaller again. And then when you get too close to the Earth's limb to looking at, you know, the Earth rise, so to speak, then you get a little bit of extra stray light too, where you really had to filter out the parts of the orbit that we could use for this measurement. And I had a large group of people working on this, including many uh, students and uh, we figured out that that light is there, but it's probably just mostly inside the solar system, inside our inner solar system. Now, most of us only dream of having like an aha moment of discovering something like that. But is that what you get when you were researching something like this? Or is it discovered over time, bit by bit, like putting a puzzle piece together? No, we hadn't expected this. We knew we could do it. We had expected to see the extragalactic background lights. Uh, to be brighter than it really is, and and we don't. But we saw this other light, but it was so clearly the shape of the light that would come from the solar system compared to the model. Um, that you know, and the model is pretty good. It explains most of what we see: the zodiacal disk and old comet trails and various other streams of particles that reflect the sunlight. But the model had never really. Um, incorporated this spherical halo model around the sun that embeds the Earth, that causes this very dim stray light. That's fascinating. Uh, Dr. Winhurst, while I have you, can I also ask you about a story in the news today about this this vortex, so this a piece of particle that broke off from the sun? Like, what is going on with this? Well, the sun is in an active period right now. Every 11 years or 22 years, really, um, the sun goes through a period where its upper uh, atmosphere, the uh, chromosphere and the corona, become magnetically more active. The uh, magnetic field inside the sun will also uh, reverse, and you will see more sunspots, and there will be more um, uh, radiation magnetic uh, particles, uh, protons and electrons, uh, spewed out of the sun, in particular the area around the sunspots. And that is happening now, and it will be increasing um, towards uh, 24, 25. So it peaks in the next two years, and then it takes a slow decline again the 10 years thereafter. It's quite repetitive every 11 years. You can set your clock to it. You will see more more northern lights in Canada. Um, The good news is you just heard the weather forecast for Victoria or or, or Vancouver, but... um, the, the, the weather forecast for the sun is that the coming solar cycle is is expected to be not as strong as it was um, a number of uh, decades ago. So we have a somewhat lesser effect uh, these next few a few coming years for coming from the sun. Interesting. The sun is like endlessly fascinating. It feels like there's still so much that we don't know. Like with this this vortex that is happening, they're saying they haven't seen this before. No, we have also more and better solar observatories now, right? Soho and Stereo that look down on the sun. And and this is, by the way, how we also knew that there is probably far more comets than we ever observed. There's, you know, a comet almost falling in the sun every day, as these facilities have observed. And these facilities also see this uh, this strange magnetic mixing happening in the sun. We we don't fully, uh, completely understand the sun, and that's yeah, it's a complex beast. 
I know. And endless work for you too. Lots of things for you to do for you and your students. Uh, thank you for yeah. your time this morning. Sure, you're welcome. Appreciate that. Dr. Roger Windhorst is a veteran astronomer and regents professor at Arizona State University's School of Earth and Space Exploration. Always fascinating to talk about outer space for sure. This is Mornings with Simi. Did you know that last year in Campbell River, 27 people died from toxic drugs? Campbell River, 27 people. That is a shockingly high number for a small-ish community. Health workers say they need more help. They need more detox, more treatment, more everything to help pull people out of this crisis. Now, as part of the harm reduction efforts, they will also see small amounts of drug criminalized as all of BC is undergoing this three-year pilot project. And so Campbell River City Council has also decided that they, they need to do a little more too. Councillors there have passed a bylaw banning the use of drugs on all public property. So let's talk about why they felt they needed to do this. Ben Lanyon is a councillor in Campbell River and joins us now to talk more about it. Thank you for being with us. Oh, thank you, Simi. Appreciate it. What brought this about, the idea that to, to put this bylaw into place? Um, so the uh, it, it was actually suggested to us to consider it by the RCMP for, for various reasons that they have. Um, I, I have my own personal reasons, which I'm happy to get into as well. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it, it appeared necessary. Um, I, I actually, if you don't mind, I could uh, put it in the form of a story. Sure, <laughs> but, absolutely. Uh, it's the story of Portugal. Um and I think a lot of people actually don't know much about the history of Portugal and how their current system got into place. Um, in, uh, in 1933, Salazar came into power there and, and ran a dictatorship. So he died in 1968. And then his, his dictatorship collapsed about six years after that in 1974. Um, and during, during his rule, uh, the country had poor economics and very low education. Uh, low education was to keep the population docile. Um, after, after the collapse, uh, borders opened, uh, drugs flowed in freely, and by the 1980s, um, I understand that about one in 100 people were addicted to heroin, and one in 10 had some sort of dependency or relationship with what we call hard drugs. Um, their um, crime rates were, were really high, um, HIV rates were skyrocketing, and every every family had somebody who had died or, or was currently involved with, with, uh, with drugs. Um, but slowly, over about a 20-year period, a grassroots movement came in, and they encouraged the government to decriminalize drugs. Um, and then they actually faced a lot of criticism for that at the time, because it was, as far as I know, they were the first place to actually do that. Um, the, uh, but you know, along with that decriminalization, they had a, a certain firmness to it as well. Um, so in 2001, Portugal fully decriminalized um, and the current policies began. Um, and, and I think it helps to, to draw comparisons to where BC is at right now. Um, so we both have decriminalization. Um, we both have harm reduction. But Portugal, and this is a key difference, which you actually mentioned in your introduction, um, they, have, they have a lot of treatment beds and detox. Um, and BC has not had an increase in the number of treatment beds since 2016, despite the sharp increase in drug use and overdoses. What's that um, so, done in a place like Campbell River? Uh, what's that done? Yeah, the, like on the ground. Like I, I, my office is right downtown in the in the center of it all, and I, I personally have seen so so much increase in in public drug use. You know, there's been a de facto um, stoppage in in uh, like drug enforcement with the RCMP. 
Um, so it's 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 quite noticeable. We've had I think there was one weekend where we had seven break-ins, like broken glass in businesses. Um, so it's been very rough on on the general population here. Okay, and is that why when this bylaw was suggested or when this wording was suggested from the RCMP, you thought, okay, this might be a good idea? Uh, yeah, although it's it's more definitely more than that. Um, like it, there's there's actually a compassionate angle to it that I think people miss, um, and and mainly people who don't understand the uh, like how the Portugal model actually works. Um, and I, I think the big question is if if you have more treatment beds, how do you actually get people into treatment? Um, so Portugal system, uh, when a person is is uh, found with possession of drugs under a 10-day supply, they're brought before what's called a commission of drug dissuasion, which is made up of a legal professional, a health professional, and a social work professional. Um, in, the, in, in the first instance, um, if their case is deemed to be non-problematic, which is the vast majority of the time, their case is suspended, there's no fine, they're just encouraged to not do that again. Um, but as, as they come before that commission more and more, and problematic trends are identified, then the, um, the commission can recommend uh, brief, like non-mandatory intervention right. and counseling. And then if that continues even more and there's problematic behavior, and, in, and that would be defined as uh, like a high-risk case, and I, I would say any, any hard drug user now is a high-risk case because of fentanyl um, or dependency, i.e. addiction, then they're referred to specialized treatment services. And in, some, in, in a lot of cases, it's actually mandatory medical treatment. Um, so that, we're missing that whole last piece in BC. We, so, we focused entirely on harm reduction, but not on treatment. I think, Ben, a lot of people would agree with you on that. But I guess what I'm curious is, what is the link between that, then missing that treatment, and then a bylaw that says you, you can't do any of this in public? Do you think, how, how's that yeah. going to help? Yes. So, so the, like, what we're able to do as a municipality is very little. Um, but we're doing the piece, which is the dissuasion piece. The, the, like in, in Portugal, public drug use is not allowed and it's not encouraged. And it's in no way seen as reducing stigma, like we're being told. The stigma reduction that comes from the Portugal system is the absence of criminal charges. And criminal charges, when you have them for, for drug possession or use, that hurts your future educational and, and work opportunity. So it, 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 this bylaw is defended by the Portugal model, which is you do not encourage it. In fact, you dissuade it using commissions of drug dissuasion, as they're called. Okay, so how, then, is, how is this going to work then? So is it a, a bylaw? I know the wording changed a little bit, right? Yeah, it was, it was just an administrative change of words within the same sentence. But yes, just so that it met the definitions within the criminal code. Okay, and so how is council hoping that this will work then? Uh, so the, the actual in practice, um, there's a $200 fine, which everybody knows is not going to be paid and probably will not be levied against people who are using in public. But what it does is it opens the opportunity for RCMP to, to come discuss with the, with the user and then at their discretion, they can confiscate and remove that person from the area that complained. So it just simply gives a tool to the RCMP and to the public, which in my opinion reduces stigma because it reduces fear. And so when when will this go into effect? And do you do you want it to be put into effect sort of so that you can deal with what you see like looking outside your office now? Uh, well, it's in effect now. And I, I know some people who have already called and the RCMP have responded. And I'm not aware of any fines. So it's there, there's a lot of uh, like um, inflammatory language coming at us and, and criticism of this. 
But those are, that's from people who, who do not understand. Like they, they haven't taken the time to look at a model that works. Right. Like this isn't supposed to be a free for all. No, it's not. It's not whatever you want to do, wherever you want to do it. That, that won't work. That will increase stigma, not reduce it. All right. So is there um, a plan then, Counselor, for like kind of revisiting this and seeing how it's working and, and what's been going on? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're like, the, you know, our council's wide open to new information that we might have missed. Um, but it, it will give it some time and, and, you know, see how the public appreciates it and what effect it's having. And I think, honestly, it's good to have a control group in any kind of study. And I think BC is undergoing a bit of an experiment right now. And, and if we don't have a control group, how can you make comparisons? Well, this is really interesting. And I look forward to talking to you more about it and find out how it's going. Uh, so thanks for being with us this morning. Oh, it's my pleasure, and I really appreciate what you're doing. Thank you. No problem. Ben Lanyon is a Campbell River City Councillor talking about the bylaw that they've put into place there that essentially bans public drug use. And as you heard them say, they put a lot of thought into it, and they have been getting some criticism, so we wanted to hear what their thinking was behind it, and you heard it there. So they're saying this is not a free-for-all. Yes, they understand small amounts of drugs are being decriminalized, but there have to be other things that go along with that. So we will actually follow this along, see how that goes in Campbell River, because clearly they needed to do something. 27 deaths in that small community in one year, which is what happened last year, is just a shockingly high number, and they do not want to see that happen again. This is Mornings with Simi. I don't think we've ever talked about mental health as much as we have the last couple of years. It's good, right? We know that ignoring mental health in our healthcare system has been a factor in where we are today, especially in dealing with the public health crisis of the opioid overdoses we have in our province. But sure, we talk about it, but are we making sure people have the right kind of access, and not just here in BC, but right across the country? That's the kind of discussion that we didn't hear in the health meeting between the provinces and the federal government this week. And Dr. Karen Cohen is the chief executive officer of the Canadian Psychological Association and is with us now to talk more about that. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me here today. Dr. Cohen, were you disappointed that this week this wasn't more of a topic? Um, well, I think it's, it's certainly one of the shared priorities about the additional monies that have been promised by the federal government in the bilateral transfers. Um, it, it certainly isn't a targeted transfer, but it is one of the shared priorities for the transferred funds. I think one of the challenges in mental health is we always worry, will it get short shrift? Will we don't spend uh, proportionally as much on mental health care as we do on physical health care. And the community is, is always concerned that that, that that change and move in the right direction. Right. How much of a difference do you think that could make if we had integrated psychological care in our health care system? I, I think that would make a huge difference for a few reasons. We, we've heard uh, quite often frequently about the millions of Canadians who don't have primary care providers, be they physicians or nurse practitioners. So many people bring all of their health problems, including their mental health problems, to primary care. If we were able to respond to their mental health problems in primary care with licensed providers like psychologists who are trained to deliver mental health care, that that could free up family doctors to see more people for their core practice, which is their general health problems. Right. And so you but we're not doing that anywhere, are we? 
Well, I think uh, the integration of psychological services in, in primary care is actually happening in small pockets across the country. I think one of the goals of the of the new uh, shared priorities and the targeted uh, and the transfer payments is to kind of grow those innovations. There actually was a really good uh, study in BC. The BC Psychological Association uh, did a recent study integrating psychologists into primary care. And as I understand it, they showed that in less than three 30-minute visits with a psychologist in primary care, they saw reductions in things like suicidality, depression, anxiety, and healthcare utilization. So that would make a big difference. Are you, are you hopeful that these things are on the table? I hope so. I mean, I think what's different now, maybe than 10 or 20 years ago, is that, as you mentioned when you started, there's so much recognition that mental health issues are a problem and that we're not doing enough to give people the care they need. We didn't have that recognition 10 or 20 years ago. We do now. So I hope that all levels of government will agree on what's important, which is getting better care to the people who need it. And how do you envision that then? Is that is when somebody is in a hospital, like now it seems like if they have a mental health crisis, we just kind of release them with a, here's a recommendation or a referral. How do you think that Um, would change? Well, I think if, I think the reality, one of the challenges of the Canada Health Act, of course, is its treatment of mental health and mental health treatment. Um, there are two main treatments for mental health problems. They're either psychotherapies, psychological interventions, or medications. We don't have a pharmacare program, and we only cover the services through Medicare of physicians in publicly funded venues. So much mental health care takes place in communities by psychologists and other mental health providers. If we put those mental health providers on teams, that were supported by our public health care system, that would automatically create more access to people who need it, who otherwise couldn't afford to pay out of pocket because it's not covered by Medicare. Right. So this is still something we are working. Is any province, do you think, listening on this? Um, I think so. I think there's been pockets of change. As I mentioned, there there was a study in BC that looked at integrating. I know there's some some folks in Ontario who, who have looked at the difference it makes when you integrate psychologists into primary care. So I think it's happening. I think with more support and more resource, hopefully we can grow it so that more people can access it. Yeah, hopefully. Dr. Cohen, thank you so much for your time. Pleasure. Have a good day. You too. That's Dr. Karen Cohen, Chief Executive Officer of the Canadian Psychological Association. They envision a healthcare system where mental health and physical health are integrated together. Imagine what a difference that could make. It'd be huge, right? This is Mornings with Simi. We were just talking about this. That's very true. Public safety is a hot topic these days. With it comes a discussion about what's called catch and release, right? People who get arrested and released and arrested and released and commit similar or the same crimes over and over and over again. Now, if we did actually send them to jail, what would change? Like we like to think that in prison, people have a chance to rehabilitate themselves or get help and treatment. We like to think that. But what's actually happening? Well, that is the subject of the Auditor General's latest report, actually. And Michael Pickup, the AG of BC, joins us now to talk about it. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I am good. Thank you. So first off, tell me what you looked at in this report. Sure. So we really have focused in on Indigenous clients in correctional centres and essentially looked at whether the Public Health Services Agency, Provincial Health Services Agency, um, consistently delivered um, the services for mental health and substance use disorders that um, they had expected to be delivered. Okay. And what did you find? Um, unfortunately, we found that they, they did not consistently um, provide Indigenous clients um, who really do have mental health and substance use disorders in most of the cases 
with the access to the required mental health and substance use services. And that's along the whole continuum of care. Right. So you looked at something like, what, 92 client files? Um, absolutely, and uh, which which uh, may not sound like much, but it, it's quite a process given, you know, the, the manual nature of these files and sometimes the inability to, you know, gather information uh, quickly. And we looked at those files really right from screening, you know, from people coming in, in the doors right through to uh, discharge um, and sort of five key touch points along the way. So you were looking at what the Provincial Health Service Authority was providing to these clients. What was missing? What weren't they getting? Yeah, so, so really if I was going to put it in, in, in simple terms, you know, um, if you look at sort of the assessment and care planning, for example, you know, when people come in, they need to have a, a plan for, okay, here is your issues, here are your problems, here, are, here is your plan. Um, you know, 40% of the files um, that we looked at didn't have a plan. You know, 20% had a plan for some of the needs, um, and only 40% uh, had a plan for all needs. Remembering um, that 90% um, of Indigenous people who are in correctional facilities have a diagnosed uh, mental health or substance use or both disorder. So this is critically important that these things are done. Yeah, how much of a difference do you feel like this could make? If we treated people with what they need when they are in prison... How much could it? How much of a difference could that make when they're back out again? Yeah, uh, I think the, the the simple answer for me as an accountant is, you know, uh, I'm not a medical professional, but the reason why all these things are meant to be put in place and to exist are by you know those who do know and those who do say, you know, this is critically important that this uh, is in place to help people. And uh, and I would just add because because I really you know don't want to lose this point is that you know when people get discharged when they leave these facilities. Um, you know, they ought to have a plan in place uh, according to the to the PHSA's own policies. And, you know, 89% uh, percent of the files we looked at, and there was no discharge plan in place. So, you know, people are in these facilities, then they will leave these facilities, and they need to have a plan according to the provincial policies. Uh, you know, we don't make this stuff up. These things exist for good, sound medical and care. Um, and to your point at the intro, I guess, you know, um, you want people when, when they leave these facilities to be uh, looked after and to have a plan in place. Yeah, I just feel like long term, otherwise we are going to just continue to get a revolving door here. Uh, you also found that 20% of these people received absolutely no services. Is that right? Um, yeah, that's right. So, um, you know, it was quite, quite, a, quite a mixture, you know, um, and, and again, if I go back to even having the plan in place to how you're going to, to, to treat people, absolutely 40% didn't have a plan, but um, 28% of people um, of, of the files we looked at uh, received no, no services. Um, and I think part of this, you know, you know, let's not lose sight of the fact that, that supervisors are supposed to be reviewing these files. Um, but, you know, 34% of files, and files are people, right? These are people that are in these facilities. 34% of people's files, people's care, weren't being reviewed by supervisors. Um, you know, and we don't make this stuff up. Supervisor review is supposed to happen um, for many good reasons, and it just it wasn't occurring like it was supposed to. And, Michael, any response from the government on this? Yeah, so we made four recommendations, really zeroing in on very specific things, and the government has, has accepted the recommendations and have indicated a course of action. And I hope people will ask questions. I mean, and here we focused on the Indigenous um, population, Indigenous clients in correctional facilities, but it really does beg the question, um, 
you know, what's happening for services with the non-Indigenous population as well. I feel like that's your next report. That could, that, yeah, that may be a, that may be a way to go. But I'm yeah. hoping in the meantime, you know, people people can ask those questions even based on this report. Yeah, that's very right? true. Listen, right? You know, there's there's good info in here to say, okay, well, what about everybody else? That's so true, Michael. Thank you. Oh, happy to do it, and thank you for your interest. And lots more reports coming out over the next couple of months. So and, and stay we'll be, tuned. We'll be talking to you again then for sure. Uh, that's Michael Pickup, Auditor General of BC, talking about his latest report. Treatment like that, if people get what they need when they are in prison, could go a long way towards helping us with what's happening outside of prison these days too. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. So this week, there has been a global ocean conservation conference happening in Vancouver. That means representatives from 123 countries who have been meeting to discuss the state of the world's oceans. What does that mean for us here in BC, in our coast? Well, there was an announcement about that, actually. You may have missed it in all the news that's been going on. So let's talk about it now with the help of Stephen Guibault, who's the Minister of Environment and Climate Change of Canada. Minister, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure, Simi. Please tell me about this announcement that was made this week. This is a big marine conservation plan. Yes, we, um, my colleague, uh, Minister Joyce Murray, Minister of uh, Department of Fisheries and Oceans, and I announced that we would be creating 10 new marine protected areas um, in, in our goal to, to, to reach a, a, a protection of our oceans, Canadian oceans, of at least 30% by, 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 by 2030. So that's a, a significant push forward, and, and these projects are done in collaboration with Indigenous peoples um, who have been, in many cases, working on some of these projects for, for years and years. Right, and do we, what is this area, so this protection plan here, what area does this involve? Um, some of the projects are, are well advanced. Some are still at an earlier stage of development, but for, for example, there is a, a very large uh, project on the, on the Great Bear uh, Great Bear Coast, just off the shore of the coast, that a number of Indigenous communities, nations have been have been working on. Uh, this was part of a, an announcement that the Prime Minister and I did uh, just back in December in Montreal during the uh, the Conference of Parties, the COP15, um, where we announced eight hundred million dollars for four uh, new con- Indigenous-led conservation areas. So one of the, one of them is here on off the coast here in BC. There's one in the uh, Northwest Territories there. There's another one in, in BC on land and another one in northern Ontario. What goes into planning something like this? I know, you know, that's so beautiful along the coast. So I think there's lots of areas we'd like to see mm-hmm. protected. But how do you decide where and when and how that happens? Well, first, first thing is that federal government doesn't decide, but we work in collaboration with, with, with many partners and governments like Indigenous governments, the province of British Columbia, of course. And, and it can take a, a bit of time to develop these, pro- these projects because you, you want to involve all stakeholders, um, people who, who are users of, uh, of the oceans, obviously uh, people in, in, in the fishing industry, tourism, local communities, um, to ensure that, that people don't feel that you're doing something to them or you're doing something for them, but, you, but that what we're trying to do is to do something with them. Right. So what is the eventual goal here? How much of the area would the government like to see protected? So that that conference I was talking about in Montreal in, in December was a united conference on, on biodiversity. It was the 15th conference, on, uh, International Conference on Biodiversity. 
and 196 countries agreed that um, to, to, to help nature recover from decades of abuse, by 2030, we need to protect at least 30% of our oceans, coastline, and inlands. Uh, in Canada, we, for, in terms of oceans protection, we're almost at 15%, um, so we're halfway there. Um, some people might say, well, geez, you know, you only have seven years to, 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 to do the other 15%. But when, when our government came into office uh, in, in 2015, Canada wasn't even protecting 1% of, uh, of its oceans and, and coastlines. So we've went, we went from 1% to 14%, to 15, 15% in the last, in the last seven years. So basically we just have to keep going at the same pace to get there by, 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 by 2030. Okay, when we say we protect it, what does that mean? What is not allowed to happen there then? That's a good question, Simi. In fact, we, we made an announcement this week about the standards uh, that, uh, that will be used to define the, the, these areas. So uh, we, we didn't look at industrial activities per se. That's not what, we're, what we've, we've looked at, but we've looked at impacts of these activities in marine protected areas. So, for example, uh, they, they, because of their impacts, there'll be no oil and gas activity. Uh, we, we've announced yesterday, Minister Ministers Wilkinson, Murray, and myself, we've announced that Canada was putting an effective moratorium in place on deep sea mining because there's so little we don't understand. There's so much we don't understand about about our oceans. If we were to do seabed mining, how would that even happen? What would be the potential consequence uh, if if there's a problem? How would we deal with it? So there's a lot we don't know, and and and, and the first thing is to try and get a better understanding of uh, of our oceans. And so that means um, because, no no fishing either, right? No commercial, no recreational fishing in those areas. Uh, no no fishing uh, as well. Uh, no aquaculture because of the the impacts of the use of pesticides on uh, on on uh, on these areas uh, as well. Okay, and so that goes into effect now. Well, depending, uh, some, we're we're still in the process of, of of creating many of these projects. So we're hoping that in the very near future, um, the these projects will will be announced, will be formally announced, and we'll be able to show you on a map where it is. We did present a map of uh, of twenty five projects across the country um, in terms of marine protected areas that that we're working on that will enable us to reach. So we have goals for twenty twenty thirty, but we also have interim goals for twenty twenty five. And that map shows how we get to our 2025 targets on our way to, to, to those of 2030. So when we say that those areas are protected, then, Minister, does that mean there is no access to them? Will or will there be a way for people to see these pristine spaces? Oh, yes, definitely. Uh, tourism, tourism activities are, 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 are allowed. Um, so either I mean, depending on how, what you want to do, how you want to do it, but the idea is to is to keep those those areas pristine so that we can enjoy them and our kids and our grandkids can continue enjoying those those, those beautiful areas. Well, thank you so much for explaining it to us this morning. Thank you very much. That is Stephen Gibo, who's the Minister of Environment and Climate Change of Canada, talking about these uh, protected areas that were announced this week. There was the federal government, along with 15 coastal First Nations, announcing this protection plan for an area that's called the Northern Shelf Bioregion of our province. So it goes from the top of Vancouver Island all the way to Alaska. There's a number of islands and there. The Great Bear Rainforest is included, as you heard the minister mention there. So they're talking about full protection of the marine environment 
unemployment in those areas. And that's that's pretty sizable. And as you heard, they're about halfway to their goal of providing more marine protected areas by the year 2030. And, you know, don't underestimate the power of the tourism in those areas, too, because people from all over the world will pay big bucks to see some of these pristine environments that we are so lucky to have with us all the time.